Okay. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DiBiaz. Tonight's guest is legendary author Tony Castro. Tony is an award-winning columnist and political writer who has written for The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, The Dallas Morning News, and The Political Observer. Since the 1970s, Tony Castro has written several books that cover an amazingly wide variety of topics, from the emergence of Mexican-Americans in American culture to a bio of Ernest Hemingway to splendid dual accounts of baseball legends Dodo Maggio and Mickey Mantle, Lou Gehrig, and Babe Ruth. Twice he has written biographies of Mickey Mantle that have received enormous critical acclaim and praise from baseball experts nationwide. We're two days away from opening day for Major League Baseball, and 2021 marks the 70th anniversary of Joe DiMaggio's final season and Mickey Mantle's first season as Major League Baseball players. Five years ago, Tony Castro wrote a dual account of DiMaggio and Mantle titled DiMaggio and Mick, Sibling Rivals, Yankee Blood Brothers. Tony, welcome to the show. It's a great honor to have you. My first question is this. When Joe DiMaggio began the 1951 season, did he do so with the advanced knowledge that this was going to be his final season? I think it was left open. Uh, I think there was still some thought that he might come back for the next season, 1952. Uh, 1950, 1951 were both very difficult seasons for DiMaggio. Uh, he, you know, he dated back to 1936. Uh, uh, Lou Gehrig's uh, finale, you know, that last season that Lou tried to go. And so when you look at DiMaggio's life and, and career, you see that he, his career spanned 15, not just 15 years, but three decades and three decades of ball players. you know, the, the, the people from the mid thirties on to the, the 40s, the war years, and then into the uh, late 40s and early 50s in 1551. And DiMaggio was uh, suffering a great deal of pain from these uh, bone spurs that he had in his heels. It was, it was a, in the same way that so much attention is usually paid to Mickey Mantle and his bad legs. Back in the late 40s and early 50s, there was the same kind of attention being paid to DiMaggio's uh, uh, heels, if you can imagine. Yeah. You know, just painful uh, bone spurs. And he tried to have, uh, he had a couple of operations during the seasons, or not during seasons, during his career. Uh, toward the end of it there in 50 and 51, and they weren't really successful. In fact, one of them was such a, a botched job that it probably cost him maybe a season, possibly two. He could have possibly been playing it until 1953. But the pain that he was going through was just difficult for him to endure. And the only thing that brought him back in 51 was the $100,000 uh, yearly salary, which is at the tops for any ball player at that time. Was Mickey Mantle surprised that he made the Yankees roster after the Instructional League in spring training in 1951? Did that take him by surprise? From everything that I've read and in talking to him years later, uh, I, I think I don't think much of anything surprised Mickey. Uh, you know, he was such a, a Southern boy who just took life as it came that uh, very little surprised him. I think he was probably more surprised by being sent to the minors, although he fully expected uh, that something like that might happen, given his, the slump he was in, than he was in making the team. By the time he realized he made the team, or the, the decision was made to, as to whether he made the team, he was a sensation. You know, newspaper reporters were writing about that covered the Yankees were writing about him on a daily basis, because in uh, 
in that spring training, which was an extended uh, spring training that season, uh, there was so much coverage, and Mickey was uh, uh, this, you know, gorgeous, blue-eyed, fair-haired boy who was a poster child. I mean, he was like Joe Palooka combined into into uh, an all-American hero. Joe Palooka being this uh, imaginary character from the comic strips back in the 50s, for anybody who's ever heard of Joe Palooka. Yeah. Tony, a year or so ago, you posted on one of your beautiful Facebook pages a great thing piece about Gay Talese's uh, immortal 1966 profile on Joe DiMaggio and his mystique. And it sparked a question in my mind, which I always wanted to ask you at the proper time. What I want to ask is this. Do you think a key reason behind Joe DiMaggio's enduring mystique and legends because he never did a tell-all book about himself? In other words, you think that's the reason why his mystique and legend is so enormous? Let's say hypothetically he had, quote-unquote, bared his soul to like Gay Talese or to you or some other uh, author. Do you think if he had done so, you think his legend would still be enormous today, or I think it might have lowered his uh, mystique level a bit. What is your opinion on that? I don't think that really entered into it. I think his mystique was there because of uh, it, uh, the great ball player that he was in a period before television really came on the way it did in the mid-1950s. I mean, you had Joe DiMaggio, who was a successor to that whole legacy of Ruth and Gary. Joe DiMaggio, who came back from the war and still managed to win World Series uh, with the Yankees. Uh, Joe DiMaggio, who, uh, you know, a whole decade and generation later was being uh, written about by uh, Simon and Garfunkel for that great movie of, uh, score of theirs. Uh, you know, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Yeah. Uh, DiMaggio was as much a part of, Mer of Americana in the 1950s as James Dean mm. and Marilyn Monroe, whom, you know, you met, he married. Uh, he was... Uh, I think the thing that hurt DiMaggio later, not so much not having written something, you know, uh, his autobiography or his uh, tell-all to someone, I, that wasn't what Joe would have done, as much as it was uh, the mystique surrounding Mickey Mantle and the idea that somehow Joe DiMaggio had been responsible for Mantle's injury in the 1951 World Series, which, uh, uh, you know, as it turned out, that was the thing that really hurt Mantle's ability to play well uh, for the rest of his career. And it was mm -hmm. a testament to Mantle that he did play great, uh, you know, on one leg, as they say, for the rest of his career after 1951. There was that, and there was this whole cult surrounding uh, the anti-Joe picture that existed and well, it built up in the 50s and it really got played up in this movie of uh, uh, you know the 61 movie of Billy Crystal that came out in 2000 and what 2001 yeah uh, that movie did a great deal along with the biography that was written that came out in the I think in 2000 that was a really a hatchet job and a half that was done on DiMaggio Mm. You anticipate my next question because baseball folklore kind of implied that Joe DiMaggio's relationship with Mickey Mantle was quote unquote cool and distance. Now, when you were doing your book, DiMaggio and Mick, what did your own personal research uh, show at, with regards to the relationship? What did you, what were your conclusions? Yeah, it was bogus. 
I mean, you're talking about the early 1950s when you had like over a half a dozen, I forget how the number, you had over a half a dozen New York uh, dailies. You had this great demand for daily copy mm. from sports writers that were, uh, look, sports writing has been transformed over the years, and there were great sports writers back in the day, but there was also there were also sports writers that were really uh, straight out of Fleet Street in, uh, in London. And you have to understand that the, you know, the, one of the things that hurt DiMaggio were his own teammates. So let me explain here. Ooh. DiMaggio uh, comes into baseball in 1936. He's a, a phenomenon then and in the years to come. By 1950, you have an entirely different New York Yankee squad, New York Yankee roster. With uh, you know, he was one of the few leftovers from that era. Yeah. And uh, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, he had DiMaggio just feeling awful every day. It was difficult for him uh, to uh, to play consistently well every day. And it, so, in 1950, you have DiMaggio with practically a new team. And Demarjo was not the most outspoken of people. He was also not the friendliest of people. Mm. He was not the, uh, you know, what's it? Mickey is immortalized as being a teammate's uh, a teammate or you know, teammate's player, that kind of a thing. That was not Demarjo. And so the the Yankee, the Yankee roster that was around Demarjo appreciated his abilities and his leadership, but they, you know, a lot of them just didn't like him. He didn't hang out with them. That, he wouldn't have hang. He didn't hang out with the uh, uh, teammates in the uh, late thirties and forties as well. But he didn't hang out with the guys. He was a loner, and the you know the painful uh, uh, physical stuff that he was going through made him probably even more reluctant to hang out with people. And Mantle, you know, contrast that with Mickey, who was just beloved by everyone, mm. uh, and you know, the teammates included. And so you had this, you had the writers who were trying to build a, uh, a story about here. You had DiMaggio, you know, the way you introduced this whole thing: DiMaggio in his final season, and the young rookie in his first season, yes. and the young rookie who was being uh, groomed to take over DiMaggio's uh, center field position. That story. And building that story was what was on the, the in the sports pages much of the first part of uh, of that season. Developing this rift between DiMaggio and Mantle. Were they close? No, they weren't close. I mean, the, uh, DiMaggio was in his uh, uh, mid thirties, uh, and Mantle was a nineteen-year-old. They were from two different parts of the world. You know, Mantle was from the South. DiMaggio was from. Uh, you know, California, not just California, but uh, Northern California. Uh, you know, Mickey, uh, a good old boy from the South, and DiMaggio, an Italian. And it brings up an entirely different thing that uh, that's often forgotten in baseball. I mean, you have this whole thing that began with, uh, you know, with Jackie Robinson and immortalizing Jackie Robinson, which, well, we sh he should have been. But with that came the idea that somehow baseball wasn't legitimate before 1947 when Jackie broke the color barrier. Mm. But somehow uh, the fact that there had been discrimination against African-Americans diminished everything that had come before that, which is utter BS. You know, uh, uh, you know I'm effectively a person of color. I'm Mexican-American. I 
I'm 74 years old, Matthew. I grew up in that period of the 50s watching old broken down major leaguers playing minor league, not minor league, uh, uh, semi-pro ball in, uh, in Texas. I was a bad boy for one of them. And the stuff that they would talk about, I mean, broken down and over the hill, they were still better than the teams that the team I was bad boy for played against, which were some of these uh, guys from uh, the Negro Leagues and the Mexican Leagues. My own man played in the Mexican Leagues uh, for two seasons back in the, in the 40s. Uh, you know, the two different kinds of baseball. You know, what you had in the majors and what uh, you had in, uh, in Negro Ball and, 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 uh, and the Mexican Leagues. Negro... Uh, the Negro Leagues were comparable to what you had in, in the Mexican Leagues and what you had in Cuba. Hardly comparable to uh, Major League Baseball. And so I say that because uh, the thing that developed, you know, with, uh, uh, with the Marshall was this feeling that somehow, uh, uh, you know, he wasn't given the same breaks as, say, Jackie Robinson were. But then neither was were Hank Greenberg. And I, what I'm getting to is a very painful, difficult, sensitive subject, which was baseball has never been uh, the friendliest of industries. And that's what it is. I mean, we're talking about a huge, multi-billion dollar business industry now, yes. which was maybe a huge, multi-million uh, dollar industry back in the 40s and 50s that was not friendly to African Americans, was not friendly to Jews, was not friendly to, to Italian Americans. There's a tremendous amount of discrimination that went on in that. Yeah, Tony, and your and your book Demage and Mick, and also in your brilliant uh, bio on uh, on Mickey, you tell tell us about a lady named Holly Brooke who was featured in both of those books about Mickey Mantle. Can you tell us about her? Holly Brooke shows up in some of the early biographies of Mickey Mantle as a showgirl uh, from the 1950s who became involved with Mickey. Uh, briefly in 1951, and uh, Mickey had a fling with her, and then she disappears. And when I was starting to work on uh, my my Mantle book in the in the 90s, I tried to locate her. And as it turned out, several other Mantle biographers tried to locate her. My friend Peter Grohlenbach spent a great deal of time trying to uh, locate her back around the same time. We all just assumed she was dead or had disappeared or something had happened to her. When my Mantle uh, Cradle to the Grave biography came out, uh, Mickey Mantle, America's Prodigal Son, it came out in 2002. A few years after it came out, I got an email from a woman, from a man named, uh, I forget his first name, I think it was Keith Holabrook, uh from back east. And I think he actually contacted my agent, wanted to get in touch with me. I contacted him and he tells, he's thanking me because in the book I had, uh, I found a little more information. I wound up uh, broadening what had been done on Mantle and Mantle's relationship with Holly Brooks. And he wanted to thank me about that. His words were something to the effect of Mr. Castro, thank you so much because prior to your book, we thought that what Aunt uh, Holly had told us about knowing Mickey and being involved with Mickey was all just, you know, uh, a, a a story, build herself up, stories for us as younger kids. And so I talked to him for a while. I called him up and I asked him, you know, when did she die? And he said, she's not dead. She lives off Central Park. Do you want to meet her? 
this is 2006, Matthew. And I said, of course. Yes. yes. So a day later, he puts me in touch with her. And almost on a daily basis from 2006 until 2017, when she passed away, or 18, I guess it was, when she passed away at the age of like 92, wow. I was on the phone with her talking to her, interviewing her, having her go over these stories over and over just to make sure uh, not only that I had them correct, but also to see what more she could flesh out. I mean, we're talking about, uh, by the time I met her, she was already in her late 70s or early 80s, and she would talk, and I would just let her talk. And part of it just being respectful to someone who, who's reminiscing about all these things, but also these, these tales of, uh, of what New York was like at that time, what it was like hanging out with men. And one of the things I found out was their relationship hadn't been a brief 1951 affair. It had lasted not only 51, but in, through the mid 60s. Wow. Uh, at one point, Mantle in 1959, I guess it was, uh, had even, in the off season, had, uh, uh, had blown her to, to Dallas and put her up in the Adolphus Hotel there in downtown Dallas across the street from Neiman Marcus so that she could go shopping. And this was when Mickey was really down and out, thinking even of retiring. Uh, 1959 had not been the best of seasons for mm. the Yankees, uh, who had lost the a pennant to the White Sox, and Mantle, who had one of, uh, I wouldn't say a worst year, but certainly a mediocre year, and he was thinking seriously about uh, how, you know, how does he end his career? Mm. And all of this was after, you know, 56 was when he won the Triple Crown, 57, he had a surprisingly great year in retrospect at that time, and uh, the Yankees thought it was such a bad year, they wound up cutting his salary, I think, by seven grand at that time. Yeah, yeah. But he, yeah. So in 1959, he has her there, and the relationship uh, as friends lasted into the mid-60s. Holly wound up marrying some New York uh, Broadway producer, uh, doing well for herself, winding up with a, uh, uh, a, a townhouse off of uh, Central Park, and living there until uh, until she passed away. Uh, she she had a son who uh, uh, in 1951 when she and Mantle met, she was she was a mother of a like a three or four year old at that time. In the late 40s, she had won a Miss New Jersey contest and had to give up the the crown leading to the Miss America contest because. Uh, um, she had been married, which was mm -hmm. against the uh, Miss America rules. I mean, that's how yeah. Miss Americas at that time were just uh, an exception and gorgeous, an entirely different kind of beauty contest or pageant than you had later with, uh, you know, the Miss Universe contest. You know, those women are gorgeous as well, but it was an entirely different kind of uh, a pageant than those that you had later and those that we have today. And so, not to belabor the point, but this was uh, this was Holly Brook, and I, I wound up using her for this, you know, Dimash and Mick. Uh, I used her in uh, Mantle, uh, the best there ever was. And in the book that's coming out later this year, uh, Maris and uh, uh, and Mantle, uh, a book about their 19, well, not their friendship. It's not limited to 1961. It's about their friendship that they, you know, dated from um, late 1951 when the 19, 
1959, when the Yankees uh, dealt for him, uh, through uh, Rogers' death, uh, you know, almost 20 years later, or more than 20 years later. Wow. Hypothetical question. Let's say Mickey had married Holly Brooke instead of his wife, Merlin. Do you think his life might have taken a different course, perhaps maybe avoid the, the horrible alcoholism that ended his life prematurely? Have, have you ever pondered that hypothetical situation? I have. And uh, Peter Goldenbach, who wrote this great fictional account of Mickey Mantle's life, uh, yeah. called uh, Seven, the yeah. Mickey Mantle novel. And it's always, you know, when I first met Peter, I said, I've read your novel from cover to cover. I'm, I'm a pretty good uh, uh, authority on Mantle. I don't see where the fiction is. And we broke out laughing on it because <laughs> if you look at it and you read it, it's like, my God, where is the fiction? Yeah. And so, uh, Peter's feeling, and you can ask him, you ought to have him on your show. Peter's feeling is that, yeah, had Holly, had Mickey gone ahead and married Holly, because to tell your, your viewers who aren't familiar with the story, in 1951, Mantle, according to what he told me and according to what uh, Holly told me, proposed to her wow. while he was, uh, he was already supposedly engaged to Berlin. This was the middle of the season before he had, uh, been demoted to, to the minors. And when he came back to the majors, uh, you know, a month and a half later, he comes back, Holly had gone down there to stay with him. He comes back with Holly in tow. And uh, his intention, if you can believe what he told uh, her and what she uh, and later told me and I think told other people that talked to him, was that he wanted to marry her and might have had it not been for his father. Wow. Because by... Uh, in late 51, in uh, the world, one of the things that also came out of that period in the World Series was that uh, Mandel's father, Mutt Mandel, discovered that he was dying. He yeah. died uh, several months later in, during the 1952 season. And around the Christmas, after the season was over, Mutt, who you know, didn't like the idea of his 19-year-old son marrying a woman who was about 10 years older than he, or uh, like, I think that she, she seven or eight years older than Mantle. And Mantle's response to that, well, Dad, you married a woman who had been married before, had kids, and was 10 years older than you. You know, a lot of yeah. people don't know that about Mantle's mother, uh, yeah. that uh, when, Mutt's, when Mantle's father went to call on a woman he, had, he was attracted to, he goes to her house. It turned out to be Marilyn's younger sister. Merlin comes comes out and steals him effectively is what he did what happened there and merlin uh, at this point not merlin uh, merlin's mother mickey's mother uh had uh had just returned home after leaving her husband and bringing home uh, a couple of kids that she'd had by that first marriage so mickey was saying to his father look you did the same thing the woman you married was even old the age difference is even more than it is between Holly and me. But uh, Mickey loved his father to no end and would have done anything for him. And make the argument that Mickey, Mickey's whole success was a testament to the, his love for his father. And so after the 1951 baseball season, when he goes home to, to try to recover from that injury to his knee, 
his father puts a lot of pressure to him and Mickey gives in. And that was, you know, marry one of your own, marry Merlin. And uh, the, the wedding that they had around Christmas of 1951 was such a, a setup that Mickey's best man was not his best friend or any of his teammates. Mickey's best man was much his father's best friend. Wow. Jeez. So you have to wonder who in the world was getting married there. Yeah, yeah. Now, Tony, you mentioned earlier you've got a future book project coming up you know, to commemorate the 1961 season, Maris and Mano. When can we expect its release? Uh, they moved it back because of the pandemic and everything that's happened since then. You know, the publishing industry, like every other industry, has been hard hit. And they just thought it would be a better, uh, it would have better success if we came out with it like in uh, uh, late August, early September to coincide with, you know, the home stretch of, the, of this season. And in 1961, that was when the Mantle and Maris Home Run Derby attracted the most attention in August and September going into early October and uh, Roger breaking that. So we can see it, uh, you know, it's, it's up on Amazon.com. You can get the copy of, I think the, uh, the Kindle copy may already even be available at this point, but certainly the uh, hardcover will be available in, uh, in the late summer. Tony, I can't wait for its release, and I'll tell you what, when it comes out, let me know the specific date. I want you on this show again, because we got to talk about that book, okay, because we, we got to. There's so many questions about Mickey, about Roger Maris. I mean, uh, there's, there's so much. I mean, I know there's an effort to get Roger in the Baseball Hall of Fame, and hopefully your work will uh, add considerable weight to that campaign and help him earn induction. So, uh, Tony, I want to thank you so much for appearing on the show, and Thank you, man. Uh, well. yeah. you know, I appreciate that. And uh, uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about Marathon and, and, uh, in the future. Tony, it's a great honor and privilege to have you. And you take care and please be safe, okay? All right, you too. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show where I will be interviewing football author Jeffrey Miller. Thank you and good night.